one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 1002, for the week of Monday, February 12th, 2018. And this is quite a special episode, one we've been waiting for for about six years now. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Happy Budget Day, Sawyer. How the heck are you? <laughs> oh, I'm doing great. <laughs> Welcome as well, Kat Robinson. Oh, lovely to be here as always. And joining us live on the scene from his first robotics club, welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hey, everybody. I'd love to make some comments as we go, but because of the crowd and the difficulty of finding a quiet space, I'll probably be lurking for most part. But I am excited to hear what Sawyer has to say and certainly everybody else's comments on it. Uh, if you wonder what I'm thinking, you'll just have to wonder if I'm unable to jump in. So thanks. It's good <laughs> to be here. Oh, we're finally glad to have you on here for season 10, and it's uh wonder as we will, but I think we'll get to hear from you a little bit. In the meantime, let's jump right in here. So, in case you're wondering, the big story of the day has to be the SpaceX Falcon Heavy finally taking flight. The Falcon Heavy lifted off for the first time on its demonstration flight on Tuesday, February 6th at 3.45 p.m. Eastern Time. Look at me doing that without notes in front of me like I normally do because, in case you're unaware, I was actually there covering it for Talking Space. The liftoff went exactly as planned towards the end of the launch window, which lasted from 1.30 until 4 p.m. Eastern Time, but it did take off. The two side boosters, which were previously flown Falcon 9 boosters, separated and both landed near simultaneously safely at landing zones 1 and 2 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station just a short time after liftoff. The center main stage was planned to land on a barge out in the Atlantic Ocean called, of course, I Still Love You. And, well, the barge apparently still loves it, even though the booster came crashing right next to it at about 300 miles per hour, destroying the booster and some of the engines on the drone ship, as well as leaving shrapnel all over the deck, according to Elon. Uh, the second stage then continued onward and delivered the payload, which was Elon Musk's cherry red Tesla Roadster car, with one of the Crew Dragon spacesuits inside it. They named that dummy Starman. In addition, there were a bunch of fun little quirks found inside the car, including a Hot Wheels model of that car, on the dashboard, as well as Don't Panic, written on where the GPS screen would normally be. And in addition to all of that, on one of the circuits on board was written Made by Humans on Earth. They then proceeded to keep up a video feed for about six hours of it just circling around the Earth and spinning, and you could see the Earth in the rearview mirror, 
and in the windshield with the star man in front of it, followed by about six hours after liftoff, an engine burn to put it on what would be a transfer to Mars orbit. Keeping in mind it was not planned to enter Mars orbit. It would just do everything it would except the engine burn to enter orbit. Uh, once it got completed with that burn, they figured, let's keep testing the engine. And uh, they pushed it until it wouldn't work anymore. So now, instead of going near Mars, it's now on its way near the asteroid belt. But overall, I would say that was about a 90 to 95% successful mission. And uh, I was there for it. So I'll have a little bit of time for comments first, and then I'll go into everything that happened. And uh, then we can play the much-anticipated launch and landing audios, because I know that's what everyone looks forward to with these specials. Yeah, uh, Sawyer, before we even start going into into a lot of things, first, I want to go ahead and give uh, the folks over at SpaceX a tip of the hat. This was a long time coming, and I know a lot of people, a lot of engineers worked. I can't even imagine the hours that went in to doing this. We talked about this when it the concept first appeared uh, back in 2012. I know there was a, a, a launch date at Vandenberg Air Force Base selected, uh, back then, they were talking about maybe 2013, somewhere around there. Well, as folks found out, it wasn't all that easy strapping two other Falcons together and trying to launch them. Uh, there was some significant engineering challenges that they discovered. But uh, all in all, uh, my my applause to the folks over, over at SpaceX. They, they put this... They... <laughs> It's always something special when something launches for the very first time. And uh, a lot of engineers, again, really put their heart and soul into this. And when you see something like that go, you know there's a, a zillion people standing behind it. Um, as far as the payload is concerned, um, to be honest, I thought it was a little bit of a commercialism kind of thing. Um, I think usually when you go ahead and launch something, you usually have a, uh, a launch simulant, uh, meaning that you have something inside this thing that would go ahead and compare with an object that you would normally launch on board. For instance, the Antares A1 launch had a Cygnus simulant on board. It was something about the same size, the same weight, the same mass as a Cygnus uh, cargo vehicle. So then this way you can get the best data possible from that ride and basically understand all of the dynamics that this vehicle was going to go ahead and produce with the actual payload on board. I'm not sure that, you know, a Tesla Roadster was <laughs> was compatible with, with, with those needs. It was sure fun. I'm not going to go ahead and say, yeah, it wasn't a fun deal and seeing these cameras and all that. But from an engineering standpoint, I'm not sure that that was the payload we wanted to send. For the obvious reason, I think it was sort of like giving a an Olympic weightlifter uh, a 10-pound barbell and then throwing him a gold medal. Um, it, it, you know, it, it just didn't really, really exhibit what this vehicle can do. But push the payload aside for a bit and really, really see that what can we do with this new tool that we have? We've got a brand new vehicle in the, in, in the, in the toolbox. Let's see what it can do to help not only launch communication satellites, not only to get other payloads into you know geosynchronous orbit but let's see too what can it do 
to help us explore and help us move forward. It's a magnificent machine. Let's see what we can do to put it to work. I just want to add my uh, congratulations to SpaceX, too, before we get into other uh, opinions, comments, reports that, um, you know, it's been a long time coming, and I'm glad that they were able to get it off the ground on the first try. I mean, again, yes, the first and absolute foremost thing is congratulations to SpaceX. I know there's a lot of people that have been working on this for years, and a lot of it's kind of been through the development of Falcon 9, has been the preparations for using some of those same features on Falcon Heavy. And uh, I got to talk with some of those people, not recorded, but just in conversation, I'd run across people down at the Space Coast for this launch going, oh yeah, I, I work with SpaceX and Engineer, I worked on this aspect, I met one of the people that worked on the grid fins to help slow it down. It's They are so passionate about what they do, and uh, to see the excitement on everyone's face when that thing lifted off was just amazing. And the space reporters too, to be honest. I mean, we've all been waiting for this for about the same amount of time. Some people haven't even been following SpaceX that long, but have known about it. So this was a big deal, and the excitement was palpable. It was real. It was the most excitement I can say that I've felt uh, since the shuttle days. Uh, by the way, Mark, what do you think about uh, about the Tesla Roadster hopping in? Okay, well, I think it's certainly a, uh, a masterful use of having needing to have a payload or a simulant or whatever and having it be something that produced such outstanding pictures and video when it was uh, revealed and continues to be something that people are in awe of. So in that respect for marketing and the wow factor, I don't think it'll be beat for a long time in terms of practicality. And was there any benefit? No, not really. But for SpaceX and for Tesla to have those images and to have accomplished that. And the fact that the roadster didn't blow up on the pad or on ascent, it's pretty good. <laughs> Very true. Uh, you may recall, uh, we actually had this on an episode when he spoke at the ISS conference last year, which we were at. Uh, he had mentioned that if it doesn't destroy the launch pad, it will be a successful mission. And he reiterated that fact the day before launch. So um, I'd say he at least succeeded in that. And, you know, almost every other aspect of the mission, too. Uh, but yeah, my thought with the uh, payload really quickly is it got people's attention. Like you're saying, Mark, it's a perfect marketing tool. It's a great way to, you know, get people's attention and interest in something that otherwise is just a test flight. The one big thing that I was thinking about when it came to, uh, to launching that was watching the coverage afterwards. All of the national media outlets in the United States had someone here. So CBS, NBC, ABC, uh, Fox, uh, NPR, all of them were there. And looking at the headlines the next morning and that afternoon, all the headlines were Elon launches car into space. Not debut of new rocket, not the potential for this thing to send people to Mars and all these bigger payloads to orbit. It was all Elon launches his car into space with Starman blasting David Bowie. Yeah, Sawyer, that, that was the point. And um, Eric Berger, bless him, uh, who's uh, writing for Aris Technica, basically pointed out the same thing. And he wrote an entire piece basically saying what I just said. Don't 
focus on the payload. Focus later on what this vehicle might be able to do for us. And, I mean, the payload, but he knew, and so did I, and obviously I think this entire panel did, knew that was going to be the focus. And it really shouldn't have been. But, again, it was a it was a great moment for advertising for Tesla. It was a great moment for advertising for, for his other company, SpaceX. But from, from an engineering standpoint, I'm not too sure what it accomplished. And I think from a marketing standpoint, they accomplished a lot. But from an engineering standpoint and really trying to figure out what this thing can actually do, I really think they gave it a puffball. I can agree with that. But you need a payload simulant. And it, again, it's more interesting to do that than a block of concrete. So either way, it was going to be an exciting launch. But that just added that extra element of excitement. I agree with, with everything pretty much said here. I mean, it was really cool. It was cool uh, to see those images I would not be surprised to see it show up in a movie somehow, somewhere. But the thing about this payload is this payload made it about Elon. Made it about one person. All everyone's talking about is, uh, as you said, Elon's car. It was a real missed opportunity. And he basically is just, in my opinion, littering in space. We already have a space junk problem and now we've got a car up there. There may have been, you know, I've seen some people talking about how it was an opportunity to test out the spacesuit. One thing that that has been brought up about this, and I have to give a shout out to Alice Gorman, who is Dr. Space Junk on Twitter, um, who did a really great article uh, about sort of the Tesla payload as well as the Humanity Star that was launched um, a little bit ago. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's no, funny. Of course. But Kat, my, my thank you. I was going to point that out. Thank you for doing it. Well, one of one of my favorite comments on uh, about well, one absolutely you should go and read this article by by Alice Gorman because it's a very interesting. There was another very interesting article that was that I read was written by uh, Madeline Buxton. Basically, said uh, the headline was today's SpaceX launch wasn't groundbreaking in one major way. If you looked at the control room, you didn't see any women and you didn't see a lot of diversity. Um, so I think that just the thought process of thinking of what was the payload, even if it was a test, this was a test flight, you know, what, what Elon chose to launch, how he chose to talk about it, what we saw when we looked at the, the SpaceX employees in the room, you know, it's a, it's a certain sort of thing that we've seen before. Um, and that to me, I just think it was a real missed opportunity. I really think, um, you know, I understand calling calling the, the spacesuit Starman was a tribute to David Bowie, which, of course, you know, people love to point that out to me because apparently I know nothing about culture. <laughs> Yay, Twitter. <laughs> uh, but in my opinion, it was a real missed opportunity to sort of make a big statement um, about the future of space and, you know, what, what he would see um, and it was just a missed opportunity. And I think my favorite comment about it, and I'll sort of leave my comments here, uh, was actually from a friend on Twitter who said, the Tesla Roaster is what uh, Beavis and Butthead would do, and the Humanity Star is what Carl Sagan would do. Yeah, Kat, I, I mean, I can't agree with you more on, on, on that one. In fact, the funny thing is Peter Beck got a lot of heat for humanity star a lot of astronomers were even beating him up over it but i i i wrote something for a oddly enough for a toastmasters thing i do 
and it was sort of like okay fine but but all all these criticisms are great substitute peter beck for elon musk and then substitute um rocket lab for spacex do you still feel the same way and if you said yes well you're consistent if you don't why yeah well you know there's definitely there there's a certain cult following um with spacex and you know, and I'm, I'm not going to say anything, you know, about whether or not how you feel about SpaceX. I think, you know, everyone can make up their own opinion. And I know we here on the show think that SpaceX is incredibly important in commercial space, public and private partnerships and what they have done. And um, so just I know I can blanket say a statement that says it covers everybody at Talking Space that we support SpaceX. We think what they're doing is great. But we also want to hold them accountable for what they do and the actions that they do. Um, so please spare me hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm waiting for it. I just want to point out, we're not just holding SpaceX accountable. This is everybody. You've heard us. We've we've called out SpaceX. We've called out ULA. We've called out NASA. We've called out pretty much every agency that launches rockets here in the U.S., even uh, Orbital after Orb 3. You know, we're not biased in who we call out we're calling out people that we see issues or something going on if you blow up a rocket we're gonna call you out on it things like that so even though it sounds sometimes like we're bashing spacex please understand that we're not especially after such a spectacular mission as this i mean i think this has just opened up a big future and again if nothing else the market will forever be changed now with this launch and uh, we're going to get into that in a little bit when it comes to uh, launch costs. So if you haven't tuned us out yet, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but again, just remember, we are a free and open exchange of all things space. That's positive, negative, and, you know, again, part of it's our opinion. And we're going to specify when it's our opinion. And, you know, we love to hear your opinions as well. And that's why we have all of our ways to contact us about it. So... You can send us hate mail, tell us why we're wrong, why you agree with us, or, you know, other nasty comments that you send us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we do read them all. And, uh, or positive things. Please send me happy things. I love happy things. <laughs> uh, I need happy things. I'm writing a dissertation, so happy things are great. Please send them. <laughs> well, here's a happy thing. I noticed on Twitter that Richard Branson of Virgin Galactic tweeted, congratulations, SpaceX and Elon Musk wonderful seeing commercial space count companies pushing boundaries and even though the media and that's the second part of my comment i recall during the end of the shuttle program that the media that i saw at press conferences and the questions that they ask the nasa launch directors and others and crew the questions they ask i thought how in the world can they ask about those things that are so irrelevant to the shuttle, to the mission, to the crew, and to the 30-year history of the program. And it's because the media that's there has to answer to their organizations. They have to provide the content that their organizations feel is popular and going to get them the uh, eyeballs and the views. And so, unfortunately, some of what we saw with media stories about the Falcon Heavy launch was what people wanted. And certainly with our audience, you're going to hear 
more, which Sawyer is about to go into, more of the facts, more of the details, and some of the tech. And I'm glad we do that. I'm glad we don't answer to the people that want to know, what was it, uh, something about uh, Paris Hilton's latest handbag or something? Yeah, something, or, or, you know, Cardassian, 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 you know, basically stuff stuff like that. That's that's not us, and I'm glad it's not. So enjoy the rest of the show. I think there's going to be plenty to sink our teeth into. Exactly, and I should point out that pretty much every commercial space company also uh, put something out, so... There was Virgin Galactic, I believe ULA, also uh, Tori Bruno sent out a tweet congratulating them as well. Uh, Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos sent out a congratulations. So there's a lot of people in this game, and I think the entire commercial space industry knows that there's not many of them, but what each of them does impacts the entirety of the industry. So that's why everyone was watching it closely, and I think that's why... We're getting all these congratulations from these companies because, A, they did something faster than the other guys. They did something great, and it's going to force everyone to step up their game and make space all that more exciting as we go. And, Sawyer, that's just it. That's the fun part about all of this. It's going to make everybody better, smarter, and uh, it's going to make their products a lot better. So I think the the entire uh, U.S., you know, space launch services business is going to benefit regardless. So again, this this cannot be anything. This is just fantastic news all the way around. Sorry, you you still have a story to tell. So let's let's go ahead and hear that. Oh yeah, that. <laughs> so uh, so yes, in case you're unaware, I was there for the uh, maiden flight of the Falcon Heavy. Uh, so we'll begin with L minus one. Uh, so for L minus one, uh, in case you're unaware, there's typically an event usually one or two days before launch. And when I refer to L minus one, that means days until launch, uh, that, uh, you get to go out. And if there's a rollout to the pad, you get to see that. If not, you usually get to go out and get pictures of the rocket, get video. And if you're setting up a remotely triggered camera, you get to set those up as well. In case you're unaware, all those really close-up rocket shots, those are taken by cameras that trigger by sound, not with someone actually on the trigger, because otherwise they would be fried to a crisp. Get to the Kennedy Space Center press site after getting my badge, oddly enough at a hotel as opposed to the typical uh, NASA press site. Uh, got my badge, got into the gates, and pulled up to the press site and was shocked because the line of press people waiting to get their bag sniffed by the bomb-sniffing dogs before going out to the launch pad was insane. It was super long. I have not seen a line that long uh, since probably EFT-1, if not shuttle. We're talking three buses worth of people. If you've been to the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, they were the Visitor Complex big, basically Greyhound buses, three of them loaded with journalists. Normally, you know, they'll just keep the gear on the bus. They had to put it in, like, the under-storage area of the bus. That's how many people there were for this launch. The number of press was insane. And keep in mind, this is still 24 hours or so before the scheduled launch time. Yeah, sorry, this sounds like STS-135. <laughs> it really does. And I don't know how many people there were for going out to STS-135, but it was along that line, too, for uh, when we went out to the launch pad. So, you know, met some amazing people waiting in line, by the way. Uh, spoke to some awesome uh, people from a Japanese news organization who were even covering it. And uh, 
Also got to meet uh, two really great people from the website TechCrunch, who I've read regularly and didn't realize they were actually sending people to this launch. And they were talking about how it was their first one, which I'm going to post in the show notes, by the way, their reaction to seeing their first launch also, because they talked about covering it as press for the first time. And it's fascinating. And also, I do make a five second appearance in it. But besides that, it's just really interesting to hear people's first reactions to seeing something like this. So we hop on the bus and they probably gave us about seven or eight options for photo opportunities and to set up remote cameras. Keeping in mind for a normal SpaceX launch, you get three, maybe four. So, I mean, they we were going right by path 39B and setting some out up that way, all around the different sides of it. Of course, the ones on the crawler way and then two of them inside the uh, gate of pad 39A. Seeing this thing for the first time was Again, the only word I've been able to use to describe everything about those two days I was there is just unreal. So going out to the pad, this thing is huge. Admittedly, it doesn't feel as grandiose as something like, say, the Delta IV Heavy. But it's still the shock of seeing something that tall back on pad 39A. You know, 230 feet tall we're talking here. Uh, So we're talking about as tall as the old shuttle, you know, servicing structure there. I think part of it was that inside the gate, we only really got side angles. We didn't really get to see it dead on. The only time we got to see it, you know, head on looking right at the uh, the Falcon Heavy logo on the fairing, um, it was kind of far away. It was a few miles out. But still, that thing, it towers. It may not be as grandiose seeming as a Delta IV Heavy, which is big, wide, and orange, but it is majestic in how big that rocket is. It just looks sleek and smooth, and it looks like the rocket of tomorrow, if that makes any sense. I mean, the vehicle itself is gorgeous, and I I kind of envy you having that right-at-the-pad kind of feel, and it was kind of a momentous moment. It it was sort of like having this this piece of history come back alive. Yeah, we've had a couple of Falcon 9 launches from there, but nothing to this magnitude, And, and to see this this large rocket again sitting on this pad must have been, you know, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I know thoughts for me would have would have flashed to, you know, a moment that that you and I had in front of in front of Atlantis over there uh, when there were, it was just you, me, and that BBC News crew sitting there. Um, we had about 15 minutes with just us and the bird, and you know, just the thoughts looking at this thing, knowing where it was going to go, and knowing that this was going to be the last time it was going to be on this thing. It was just on this pad. It was just, you know, it, it made the the hair on your on the back of your neck stand up. This thing is, it's its debut. This is its, you know, this is its moment. And that must have been really, really a neat moment to go ahead and burn in, into your head there, Sawyer. And I, I'm kind of envious you had that opportunity. It, thank you. It really was. I mean, just seeing the the light was, it was a little dull at first, but once the light hit that thing, it really shined. And uh, again, I, I don't know, I guess I was thinking more of like the Delta IV Heavy where the boosters are really tightly close together. These, it's weird seeing the little gap in between them and uh, seeing basically three Falcon 9s because that's all of the, you know, the two side boosters had previously been used on Falcon 9 missions. And I was just doing a quick search while we were talking about this. Even though both the current Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy technically are the same height at 230 feet or about 70 meters, it just looked more grandiose, it looked bigger, 
and again, it looked sleek with the, you know, the landing legs on all of them, the titanium grid fins. It was just something to behold. And even the modified launch pad, they had to create the new little servicing structure called the tail around it. And it was, I don't know, everything just looked so 21st century finally for a rocket, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it does. If for anybody that, that follows the industry, I think it they, think it makes a ton of sense. Exactly. No more weird orange tanks or that. It's slick. And yeah. It really looked it. So it was uh it was a beautiful rocket and seeing that just as the sun was starting to set on the launch pad is something I'll never forget for sure. Uh and again I'll post pictures of these in the show notes. There'll be a gallery of this as well as some launch photos. So then let's move on to L minus zero launch day. I did not expect it to be as packed as it actually was. There had been talks beforehand that between 100 and 500,000 people were expected to make their way down to the Space Coast. When I pulled into my hotel the night before launch, uh, I probably got in around 11.30 p.m. because was out celebrating the launch finally happening uh, with some of my fellow journalists and some other people that had come into town. Uh, the parking lot, full to the brim, People were parking off on the roadways, off to the side. It was jam-packed. And fun fact, I'll just throw this in there as a fun aside. Uh, as I was checking in, there were some people who pulled up in a Tesla, and they were saying that they were out of charging stations because they were all in use. <laughs> oh, there's a bit of irony for you. <laughs> exactly. The next morning, I woke up and left at probably about three and a half hours before the scheduled launch time. I counted eight cars in the parking lot. It went from completely full to only eight cars total. So everyone was there for the launch, and they had all left pretty early. So, of course, what does that mean usually? Traffic. (laughs) This seems completely arbitrary, and you're probably like, all right, just get to the launch already, but I just want to give you the full experience because this was just fascinating. So driving up to the Kennedy Space Center, to get in, we have to pass right by the visitor complex. Um... There was a line of cars going about three or four miles long just trying to get into the visitor complex. And these are people that had already purchased a parking pass ahead of time. And that doesn't count the thousands of other people that went elsewhere. All the other viewing sites, Playa Linda Beach, completely full. Uh, There's a park nearby that has three parking lots, all of them filled up two hours before launch. There has not been this much excitement probably since STS-135, even more so than EFT-1, I'd have to say. And uh, I ended up posting a video on Twitter, and folks, don't do what I did, please. But I took a video while I was driving by of just all of the cars, because thankfully, they did do something smart. They had There are two lanes on the road going in. They made it left lane was for NASA employees and badged people only that were going in beyond the security gate, and the right lane was only for pass holders to the visitor complex in hopes of leaving a nice, clear, open lane for employees to be able to get to work, or, in my case, media members to get to the press site. And it was perfectly clear. People actually followed the signs and listened. Oh, my God. Be still my heart. Actually, Sawyer, I was wondering how that was working, because I I saw that video, and I was like, boy, you know, everybody else is kind of, like, stopped at at a cold stop, and here you are, smooth sailing in the other lane. And, you know, thanks for explaining that one to me, because I was trying to figure out how the devil you managed to 
pull that off. So now I know it was uh, it was the the folks over at KSC kind of orchestrating the whole thing. Uh, now you now you understand why I went ahead and and came in for tanking on SDS one thirty five. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> After sitting in traffic for an hour and a half in the same spot trying to get to the press site at one thirty five, I remember that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's why I, I wasn't going to make the same mistake. And the press site uh-huh. opened at ten, so I was trying to get there around. 10 30 ish and yeah made it in with minimal traffic and uh getting into the press site again 10 30 place opens at 10 packed to the brim already this is only the third launch i've ever seen where they've had to use the annex in case you're unaware there's the main press site and then there's a building next door with extra desks and wi-fi and video screens and that was also full People were just standing and sitting on the sides of the wall because there wasn't room for everybody. So uh, at this point, you know, everything's all decked out, ready to go. Uh, I've got my little spot to start working. And uh, the clocks are counting down to about uh, two and a half hours until launch. The uh, clocks inside the press room were working. So look down, it says 2.20. All right, great, 10 minutes. So then I get to work on some other stuff and tweeting. And next thing I know, I look up and it went from 2.20 back to 2.30. Wait, what happened? That was a delay. As the launch got pushed back, until we were finally given access to the countdown net, where we can actually hear what was happening, the only reason we knew there was a delay was because the clock changed. We'd be working, we'd look up, all of a sudden the clock would have a brand new time on it. It would be back to two and a half hours till launch again. At one point it got down to like, you know, two hours till launch. I'm like, great, finally it's moving. And then it was back to two and a half really (laughs) the reason for this it turns out was upper level winds which uh elon thankfully tweeted out let me just say at this point the energy in the press site you know it went from excitement and buzz to i don't i just felt heavy in there if that makes sense not good falcon heavy but like the weight of everyone realizing this is gonna scrub there's no way this launch is gonna happen if it keeps getting pushed back and back and back all because of upper level winds Which, fun fact, upper-level winds are not part of the typical weather forecast because they classify weather as what's happening on or near the ground. These upper-level winds are too high up, so even though the weather forecast was 90% go, that didn't factor in the winds in the upper atmosphere. Finally, I'm going out to to get some lunch with uh, a YouTuber who goes by Everyday Astronaut, who's a fantastic guy, by the way. And that's when we finally hear that Elon has basically pushed the button at 345 is going to be their final attempt at the launch because it looked like the winds were calming down so then we proceed through tanking works everything's going on its way and we're about a half hour until launch that was when i decided to go out grab my spot just a bit to the right of the nasa countdown clock to watch the launch and uh, that meant that i couldn't necessarily see the spacex video feed which they did have up on the countdown clock we could hear it, though. And, oh my gosh, the cheers that were coming from the crowd at Hawthorne. We could hear that at the Kennedy Space Center through the speakers, and all of us were just looking at each other going, wow, they are really excited for this. And then we looked at each other afterwards and went, wow, we are really excited for this. Normally, you know, there's an air of professionalism, and there still was. But at the same time, we were professional giddy school kids, is the best way I can put it. All of us have been waiting for this for a very long time. All of this, we're anticipating it. 
and could not wait to see this thing take off. So I'm looking through the viewfinder. I'm starting to see the rocket actually venting and all that. And, you know, I couldn't really see the clock. And at one point they turned off or turned down at least uh, the launch audio from the webcast, the SpaceX webcast. So we could barely hear what was happening, especially right at liftoff. They pretty much turned it off entirely. So we couldn't tell when liftoff was going to happen. Thankfully, someone had uh, the stream up on their phone. And it went to about 30 seconds. So finally, all of us scrambling, getting our camera set up. And I'm just waiting because I remember there have been a few recent launches where it's grubbed at T minus 11 seconds, T minus 9 seconds. Mark, as you know, I'll never forget the one that we went to that scrubbed at T minus 0.5 seconds. And the clock kept counting. And sure enough, all of a sudden, I'm looking through the viewfinder and I'm seeing the water system activate. I see smoke. And then it looked like it was going nowhere. In fact, you'll hear in just a second, one person actually screamed, oh no, thinking that it was stuck on the pad, it wasn't having enough thrust, or that it was about to explode. Oh, jeez. I kid you not, you can hear it perfectly in the audio. In fact, you know what? I'm not going to make you guys wait any longer. Here it is. Oh, you got to run this. This is the launch of the Falcon Heavy coming from about T-10. So that's why there's silence in the beginning. We're starting at T minus 10. You can tell when we get to T minus zero by the guy screaming, oh no. If you are in the car, crank up your speakers as loud as possible. If you have on headphones, crank it up as well. Just watch your ears because this is by far the loudest launch audio I think we've ever had. And this is after me trying to uh, <laughs> trying to bring the levels down a little bit because otherwise it was that loud. So again, you hear the guy going, oh no, and then it lifts off because it looked so slow at the beginning. And then thankfully it just, it went. And once it went, once it cleared the tower, it just shot up there. It was going so fast. In fact, I took my photos and I made a GIF out of them and posted it to Twitter. You can see it starts off slow and then just zoom, just out of frame. It's really quick. I got to say that's probably the fastest zero to 60 on any car out there. 
<laughs> I know, as if that joke hasn't been made. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it, one of the things that struck me, because I remember, I, I'm probably one of the m- folks on the panel that remember remember listening to Saturn V live, um, and when I was little, it almost sounds identical to Saturn in a way. You know, that same kind of staccato break up in, in, in the flames and all that. You and I, we've been around for a couple shuttle launches. What was the, the feeling, you know, because I know what it was like with shuttle when that thing goes. Compare a Falcon Heavy with, with, with shuttle in a way, and I think that might be the best analog for people that have been to do a shuttle launch, um, what that must have been like when that thing went. Well, here's the thing. With shuttle, not only did you hear it, shuttle was pretty loud, but it was more the feel with shuttle. That thing yeah. punched you in the chest. It was rumbling. You, your whole chest, your whole body was shaking. You could feel the ground underneath your feet rumbling as well. With this launch, I can definitely say this is the first launch since shuttle that I've felt the ground shake. You could feel wow. everything shaking around you. In fact, I was talking with one other person who was covering it there. Uh, and they were talking about how there was a pole in the ground that was just wobbling back and forth. After the launch was over, he tried moving the pole by hand, and it wouldn't budge. That's how much <laughs> the rumble of 27 engines firing at once is. Uh, as for the feel, didn't really get that much. I got a tiny bit of vibration, but, you know... It wasn't a launch that you felt, but it was one that enveloped you, if that makes okay. sense. It the, it the sound was all around you. You could feel the rumble. You could feel the heat in the ground, but it didn't really get to you. It was more of like an around you experience than an in you experience like Shuttle was. Yeah, because Shuttle was like that thing hit you in the chest, and it was like almost like a hammer just pounding on pounding your chest this this sounds like it was it was very very different from that exactly again it was powerful you could finally feel the power for the first time in a long time but it didn't hit you it hit everything around you i was i was just curious what what it was like over there because i again i'm I'm reflecting on 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 shuttle and and all that and whatever when i saw this thing go up and I'll admit I was one of those those idiots back here screaming at their computer console, you know, to just keep that bird flying and keep it reaching for the for the sky. And uh, uh, I think I probably went ahead and alerted a, a few people at work, going, "What the heck is he talking about?" So, but... <laughs> well, there were cheers around here too, and all of us, you know, <laughs> this part you don't hear in the audio, but afterwards, while we were waiting for the landing, you can hear us all just screaming and shouting and. Uh, some words that we can't put on air, and <laughs> beginning with the word holy. <laughs> yes. And it was just, and then all of a sudden, you know, at one point we hear, you know, the fairing step, and then we just hear David Bowie start blasting through the press site. And all of us just stopped taking pictures for about five seconds and looked around at each other like, is this really happening? Not only did it actually just launch, but seriously, a Fairing separation, are they really playing Life on Mars by David Bowie? And we uh, we it was we were taken aback by it. So uh, the one thing I can say, though, with the launch that I remember, uh, while it was launching, just because of how loud it was and the brightness of it and seeing this giant monstrous wide monster tower up 
At one point, I put the camera down. I had my hand right in the middle of my chest. Again, like where I normally would feel a shuttle vibration. And while it wasn't vibrating super crazy, I finally felt something in there. So I just literally had my hand on my chest, jaw nearly on the ground, wide open, just watching this thing for a good 10 seconds before I went back to shooting it. But it was just seeing that bright light, feeling a little bit of that rumble, but just being surrounded by that sound and just seeing that go. I, I literally had to stop, put my hand on my chest and uh, wait for some something to get out of my eye. Of course, it was a bug in my eye, not tearing up because of how beautiful it was and how long we'd been waiting for it. Okay, I'll admit I was almost crying a bit. And uh, I talked to about seven or eight other people at the press site that exact same thing. They were tearing up or flat out crying during the launch. And these are members of the press that cover launches regularly. And we were all brought to tears by the launch. Wow. Just, I mean, wow. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. And it was an almost perfectly clear day. So you could see it all the way up through separation, except at the press site at the very second, about five or ten seconds before fairing separation or before uh, booster separation, a cloud rolled in. Oh, wow. So we didn't get to see booster sep. Oh, everyone over at the causeway did actually get to see the two boosters separate. And but still, it was so clear that you could see it all the way up to that point and little bit of the boost back too with the boosters when the cloud finally cleared you could see a little bit of them turning around with the little puffs of smoke so sawyer what was it like for not one but two sonic booms over there because again the last time that happened as much as i want don't want to invoke it um was again shuttle when it was coming home it would herald its its arrival with those uh those characteristic sonic booms but i was just wondering if anybody around had had seen that before and kind of measured it up to to that because I was just wondering what what, what it was like not just for one but two uh, sonic booms over there because hearing it on uh, on tel on on television or on the internet was just you know holy blank. Well, well let me just catch you right there because a normal uh, Falcon Nine rocket has two to three sonic booms. Okay. It's actually two, but it sounds like three because of the sound waves bouncing back up off the landing zone. So you hear boom, ba boom. So this one was six sonic booms, basically. <laughs> wow. And because of the way that they staggered the landings, which the landings were nearly at the exact same time, although they were intentionally staggered because of the, you know, going through reentry and going through the speed of sound and then being able to touch down next to each other. So they were off by about three or four seconds. But the delay worked out perfectly so that they were back to back to back to back to back to back. And let me just say, we all expected it. Uh, we all knew it was coming. We all knew when it was coming. But as you'll hear in the recording, someone pointed out that every single one of us still jumped at it. And the other th thing I'm going to point out, you'll hear this too, is normally when it lands, you've got the sound of one to three engines firing to slow it down. Right. You're talking times two, so this is the sound of six engines. So basically, you're kind of listening to the audio of almost a normal Falcon 9 launch in just the landing part. <laughs> so let's just, just listen to this. Uh, I'm not going to tell you when it's coming, but again, uh, crank your speakers up and just be warned, it's going to come out of nowhere and it's going to be loud. Also, uh, just fair warning, apologies in advance uh, if you're listening to this for the uh, 
for the beeping. That was not actually part of the launch. That was just some people uh, extremely excited <laughs> about the launch and uh, saying things that we can't put on air if we want to keep our clean rating on iTunes. So first off, you can just hear the excitement of everyone of, oh my gosh, they both landed. And then the wait for it, and uh, yeah. in come the booms. All six of them back to, you. again, it sounds almost like gunshots with how loud those things are. And as the one person pointed out, all of us jumped. And uh, again, apologies for having to censor some of that, because uh, we were not all in our best behavior after the excitement of seeing that happen. We were like kids in a candy shop, and... Uh, even the best of us, when we get excited, let some words slip that uh, normally we shouldn't. I kept my composure during that, believe it or not. That was not me. That was cursing. But, <laughs> but that, yeah, that, it makes you want to scream the words that those people were saying. Because that was, I mean, just picture this. So I've seen two um, Falcon Booster landings before. Uh, separately, of course. One of them was CRS-11 from the press site. The other was CRS-12 from the causeway. The causeway, you can see the landing legs pretty much unfold. This one, you're not looking for one tiny little speck. You're looking for two tiny little specks way up in the clouds. I managed to catch a super blurry picture of both of them igniting for their second burn, so the re-entry burn, and they're, they looked so close to each other. The whole time, I thought they were going to crash into each other with how close they actually were. And then when they did that final burn, unfortunately, I had someone walk right in front of me, so I couldn't really see them. So I had to scoot around. I managed to catch one more blurry picture because I didn't have time to focus in. But, I mean, they looked so close, I could have swore they were going to crash into each other. And yet, there they go. They are maneuvering themselves. They looked like they were about to crash right as they went over the tree line when we lost the visual. And that's when you hear them finally saying, they stuck the landing. We could not believe that these two, the radars didn't interfere with each other. You know, no collisions, no explosions. They both did their jobs exactly. It was unreal. Again, you're going to hear that word a lot tonight. Unreal. Yeah, Sawyer, one of the things I was thinking about, and this is, I guess, my generational thing. I don't know if anybody remembers the old Jerry Anderson uh, television shows like Thunderbirds and things like that. And uh, when I saw both of those coming down, that was just very, very Thunderbird 1-esque uh, with both of those boosters coming down or even like the old Space 1999 series. I thought of the Eagles coming down and, and lo and behold, there they were. And after they landed, it, it was odd. The first thing that went through my head was nothing's the same anymore. Those are the exact words that went through my head. Because this really did herald a new, uh, something new. You could just feel it in the air. Something new just happened. And something new is, was about to unfold here. And, and to reiterate my, my commentary in the beginning of the show, I mean, we, we've, we've got a new tool here. Let's see what we can do to make really, really put it to good use. Exactly. I mean, all of us knew from pretty much from the moment that took off, once it lifted off, that nothing would be the same, that the entire launch game was changed, especially when it comes to price. I mean, 
in total development cost, he mentioned afterwards, came out to about half a billion dollars. That's $500 million. They had talked about canceling the program apparently three different times. And the one thing that was interesting is someone compared that, and it's like apples to oranges in some ways, but someone compared it to SLS and the development for that program and how that's in the billions already. And again, like I was saying, it is kind of comparing apples to oranges, but it's just interesting that he mentioned that uh, in the press conference after launch, which I do just want to point out uh, that we as Talking Space were not in the press conference uh, that Elon Musk hosted afterwards um, after the launch at the press site. We were at the press site. Uh, However, uh, for this launch, uh, which is a first, I've never seen this happen at any launch before, and I don't think it's ever happened at a U.S. launch before that I'm aware of. Um, it was pre-assigned seating in the press site. Uh, there were over 400 media outlets that received credentials for this. It, basically, it was assigned seating that was pre-assigned, and it was uh, if you didn't get it, they were going to show a video feed of it in the press site uh, that you could watch, and then you could call in, like anybody, any of the other reporters at home, uh, to ask questions of which there were hundreds of people in line to ask questions i know gene you tried to get in and obviously could not and had some issues with yeah but for some reason talking space was not admitted into the press briefing with elon musk again john taylor who's the head of media there at uh, spacex pre-selected who would be in and what seats they would be sitting in uh and then pick and choose if people uh didn't show up or if they had room Apparently, this was to meet the uh, fire marshal's seating restrictions, uh, although I am just going to say that that has never stopped anyone in the past before. I don't want to get anybody into trouble, but you and I have been in there when it was standing room only. That's just 135, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I recall sitting right next to you on the floor, you know, looking up at um, at the dais with, with folks folks over there and and we we ran in there got our got our answers asked our questions and were able to uh to to function and and get the information out to you guys um and you know nobody was was really really worried about anything or anything along those lines nothing was really orchestrated but apparently this was apparently they were trying to go ahead and get a certain outcome if you will now i don't want to bash spacex public affairs and if you've listened to the show for a long time you know that we've flat out mentioned when they do a good job when they do a bad job with all these companies at their public affairs especially at the press site and for the longest time spacex had some major uh pr pao issues public affairs officer issues uh there was one where they accidentally let information slip that they weren't even supposed to because they didn't send a representative There were times where people had no information at all, and they were literally reading Elon Musk's tweets in a NASA press conference. Uh, They have much improved since then. And you may recall last year, we were talking about one of the launches, and we're praising what a great job they did. This launch, if SpaceX people are listening, you may want to work on it for for Crew Dragon, because if you're getting this many media members there again— it could definitely use a little bit more organization, a little more stringency on who gets press passes and who does not. There were certainly some people that were there just for their own folly as opposed to covering it for a news organization. And again, I'll be honest, I was a little frustrated at the uh, the lack of clarity and information as to who actually got in. 
when we first got back after launch and we asked about the press conference, that's when he made a gen, you know, general announcement that it'll be assigned seating and that it was done ahead of time and that, you know, if anyone is upset with him, he's a little stressed out right now, you can email him in 24 hours and complain. <laughs> I'm using this platform instead to do so, but uh, <laughs> but yes, uh, it's just frustrating for an organization like us, which you guys know, we've been to a bunch of SpaceX launches, again, dating back to 2012. Uh, I've known John Taylor for a few years now. He's a great guy, an amazing person, really kind. I can't say a bad thing about his character and his personality, but I just personally don't think that he handled this aspect of it very well, and it's just a little frustrating that Talking Space was not included, whereas some news organizations who had never been there before got in, us who have been to probably about five or ten launches or more combined between all of us, did not get a seat. For us, though, they did provide video feed, which this is a full-produced live stream video. However, we did not have access to it. The public could not watch it. So most people got it through our tweet updates uh, or from, thankfully, some of the national networks ended up having live streams online. Gene, I think you tried to call in by phone and ended up watching it on the ABC News live stream. That's correct, Sawyer. For some reason or other, I, I mean, you, you notified me. We were in there about 35 minutes before, you know, the party really started. And for some reason or other, I... You know, there's a deal where you go ahead and you set up and you ask, you set up for your, your question to be asked and put into the queue. And I did that, and all of a sudden, everything went mute. So I'm guessing that either, you know, we were put on mute for, you know, some reason or something, some technical glitch happened. I don't know. <laughs> you know? I mean, again, there, there were, there were like, I don't know how many people on the phone, um, trying to get in and uh, uh you know stuff happens but we did at least you know get listen in and and were able to present some of that to you yeah in fact i do want to point out there were two press conferences in fact there was one the day before launch and the one directly after launch the one before launch again i don't want to sound like i'm bashing spacex because their <laughs> pr people have been phenomenal and what they did was amazing but just some notes for next launch, guys. Um, Elon scheduled a pre-launch teleconference, so, you know, via phone. Uh, they had scheduled it for 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Keep in mind, we were outside getting our pictures out at the launch pad from 1.30 until 4.30 Eastern Time. So we were literally sitting on the bus on hold trying to get into the press conference while we're trying to take pictures of the rocket. Uh, but besides that, it ended up getting delayed by about an hour so thankfully we had made it back to the press site and could actually listen to it but it was just again a, a little bit of confusion there and i think for the future if uh spacex pr people are listening could use a little clarification but anyway ab about those press conferences gene i know there were some uh very interesting points that uh elon had made the first of course being that the core stage unfortunately crashed in at 300 miles per hour to the ocean right next to the uh, barge um, the autonomous drone ship, whichever you want to call it. Of course, I still love you. And uh, apparently, it ran out of the fuel that it needed to relight all three of the engines. And as a result, I think only one or two of the three that it needed actually lit. Yes, Sawyer, he mentioned something about that too today on Twitter and said it's an easy fix. They'll probably go ahead and program it into the next booster and you know, we'll see how that all works out. Excuse me. But um, one of the questions I did want to ask, and unfortunately, nobody kind of followed up on that. I noticed that during the, the, the press conference, um, Mr. Musk pointed out that 
you could strap on two other Falcon 9s at either side. And my question would have been, really, has that really been tested? Because I know it took us, as we pointed out at the top of the show, it took about six years just to get to the uh, the dual booster um, part of, uh, of Falcon Heavy. Uh, Elon Musk did state that, oh, you could easily t- strap on two more boosters and have like the, the lift capacity of Saturn V. My question, as soon as I heard that, was, has that been tested? Um, and is if so, does it work, at least on paper? And if it does, is it going to be offered to... You know, to anybody that needs a heavy lift like that, and is it going to be a component in the exploration effort coming? And nobody picked up on that. I was actually kind of kind of surprised that nobody followed up on that. Yeah, again, it was also very difficult to get in with some follow-ups, but I don't want to, again, apples to oranges here a little bit, but I was thinking about how Vulcan, United Launch Alliance, has basically said that how much they can carry up gives depends on how many boosters they have and like the atlas you can choose how many boosters you put on if spacex could do that with their rocket you know have a mix and match you need two boosters you need four boosters you need five whatever it takes that would be crazy and again elon was talking on twitter today about it on this recording date um that they're gonna get a uh, a third uh drone ship out there as well and was even talking about landing some of those boosters out at the uh, out on a barge, so having all three of them land on a barge as opposed to back at land, if you know, in an attempt to save on fuel costs if it's a heavier payload. The other thing too that he he kept on one of the things he he did mention was kind of using sort of like an assembly line approach where you have a a launch and then you bring the thing back and you go ahead, you clean it up and you're ready to launch within a few hours and you keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. At least this is, this is the game plan for the uh, Brownsville or AKA the Boca Chica location. My thought again is okay, great. Um, And Kat, I think you had a similar thought was fine, but can the market withstand that? Is there a demand for that kind of launch activity? And my bet is no. Not right now. There's not a demand for that. And I don't know that that providing the supply before the demand is, is necessarily a wise idea. And then like, one thing that I think that all of us we've discussed before is, you know, now we've had a Falcon Heavy launch, but based on what Elon has said in the past, the Falcon isn't going to be around forever. Right. He mentioned in a press conference that he wants to start launching his next rocket, the BFR, as early as next year. Albeit, if that happens, I will eat my The Boring Company hat that I don't have. But <laughs> <laughs> With mustard, Sawyer. Dark mustard. We just have to remember, next year in Elon time is not next year in the rest of the world time. Well, if we're following Elon time, that means that we're six years away from BFR. Which I think might be a good time estimate. <laughs> it's, honestly, I think it's doable. I, I could see six years as realistic, considering that's what it took for, um, you know, Falcon 9 to Falcon Heavy. And he was saying that these were heavily modified because they thought, oh, we'll just strap the three together. And then realized, wait, there's a lot more modification we have to do to it. I, I could see the same kind of thing happening. But again, you know... The ambition is great. It's nice to see people finally pushing it, although 
sometimes when you set your boundaries so close and when you don't meet expectations, it, it can kind of disappoint. Although in this case, I think it did the opposite. I think it added hype to it. And going back to the need for it, I think when Elon first announced the Falcon Heavy, there was a need for a big heavy lift vehicle. Uh, but then, you know, once they realized that that wasn't coming to fruition, people started shrinking their payload sizes down a bit. And now that Falcon Heavy's finally ready, everyone's like, well, now we don't have the need for it because we kind of had to fit our satellites to the current market. So now hopefully that means that people can start building up their payloads again yeah. and get some larger stuff to orbit. I have to say I'm really excited that Falcon Heavy launched, but what I'm looking most forward to is its second successful launch. With a real payload. Yes. Right. This was just the demo flight. And uh, Elon said that they're hoping to get that next launch off within about three months or so. So I I don't know if it'll be three months, but I would not put it past them to have a sec, at least a second Falcon Heavy launch, if not a third this year. Well, I think that's important because, you know, they need to they need to demonstrate reliability with the Falcon Heavy. And as exciting as it was that they had a successful first launch, uh, a successful demo flight, that doesn't demonstrate reliability. Right, and admittedly, I I hate to say this, but it's going to be exciting when the normal press doesn't care about Falcon Heavy launches anymore. Because if that's <laughs> the case, that means that, like, the Falcon 9, it's back to normal. Mm -hmm. You know, if it gets a 10-second mention, it's supposed to being the lead story on every single national news network that night and the next morning. Then you're back to normalcy, which can be scary in the space industry and you know a lot of times we complain oh i wish that you know space got more coverage and admittedly it got a lot of coverage because elon was launching his car but when it goes back to oh another rocket launch then you know you've got a reliable vehicle exactly which uh in terms of its uh lift capacity uh i do want to just talk about this before we finish for the evening here um oh boy here we go <laughs> i know what's coming yeah i was there when it broke out <laughs> we're not the only ones uh elon himself getting in on the conversation on twitter on february 12th 2018 um there had been a lot of charts that i've been seeing before launch of the capacity of the falcon heavy and how it's less than shuttle. It's less than Atlas 401s in some instances. It's less than Delta IV medians and heavies in some instances. Basically saying that, yeah, it can carry bigger payloads, but they can't be that much heavier. Or for that same amount of mass, you don't need a heavy. You can do it on a normal Falcon 9. There's a few people that had um, brought that up. The first one uh, being Doug Ellison on Twitter. He tweeted back on February 2nd before launch. Um basically saying that, quote, I've got to do a deep dive into the launch requirements of mission designs beyond low Earth orbit and compare Falcon 9, Arian, Atlas V, 401, 551, Falcon Heavy, and Falcon Heavy Expendable. A lot of people will be very surprised. Specific impulse on the upper stage is everything. And basically came out with the fact that Falcon Heavy is outperformed by high-end Atlas Vs, and an Expendable Falcon Heavy is probably more expensive than those Atlas Vs. Elon coming back today saying, quote, the performance numbers in this database are not accurate, referring to a NASA database that they use to get these numbers, in process of being fixed. So apparently the numbers that were being used uh, were from uh, the Falcon Block 1, so basically the original Falcon 9s. Now we're going up to Block 5 for the next Falcon Heavy launch. He then went on to say, even if they were, 
a fully expendable Falcon Heavy, which far exceeds the performance of a Delta IV Heavy, is $150 million compared to over $400 million for the Delta IV Heavy. I should point out that uh, Tori Bruno of United Launch Alliance came back and said it's not that heavy, it's actually $350 million. The Twitter war that is happening, and uh, <laughs> basically the little dig there at all of the ULA stuff. I do want to point out that after his comments on ULA, someone said just under $400 million for Delta IV Heavy, not over. The cost of the Parker Solar Probe launch is about $389 million. Uh, Elon said that was three years ago when the contract was announced in 2015, before ULA canceled all medium versions of Delta IV. Future missions have all Delta fixed costs piled on, so their cost is now $600 million or more for missions contracted for launch after 2020. He called it nutty high. And then when someone asked about the idea of switching to Vulcan and Centaur for heavy, he said, maybe that plan works out, but I will seriously eat my hat with a side of mustard if that rocket flies the National Security spacecraft before 2023, talking about the Vulcan. To which Tori Bruno just replied, wow. <laughs> um, darker and with horseradish, you got to make sure the horseradish is in the mustard. I'm just, <laughs> just saying. Why? Because you're bitter? Uh, uh, no, 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 no. Actually, it's very good. That's what I'm saying. You know, it, it actually adds to the flavor. Um, just make sure you've got the right kind of hat, I guess. Um, I don't even know what to think anymore. Um, I do know that Doug, I think, ran the numbers for um, basically the most proletarian version of the Atlas V, the Atlas V 401, and basically said that well, heck, I mean, you could you could loft that that roadster using an Atlas V four hundred one, and which goes back to what we were saying in the beginning of the program. This really wasn't a good test for Falcon Heavy and its liftability, even though it it, it could it could probably deal with a much heavier payload than it did. He basically said that Falcon Nine probably could have gone ahead and launched that 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 roadster as well. Um, the and um, Atlas V four hundred one probably could have launched that roadster as well. Now I'm just going to throw this out there. I haven't run the numbers. I haven't run it for this website, but I do remember Orbital ATK saying that they got almost about as much lift that an Atlas V four hundred one could give you from the re-engined Antares. So that leaves the question could Antares have launched this roadster and done it as well so uh, uh, it, it's just sort of validating what we what we said in the beginning uh, was this a good test for this large booster probably not a, a simulant probably would have been the better way to go here where you're you're kind of really really seeing what this booster is made of as you know a mass simulant with sensors and and cameras and things like that uh, i mean it was a great again it was a great deal i mean it, it's it was a great publicity you know, stunt but yeah thank not you the wisest uh decision when it comes to engineering one thing that i just want to say outside of the argument about the numbers is i just really admire the way that Tori Bruno engages on social media, not just on this subject, but just in general, uh, his engagement with people who ask him questions, with the respect in which he engaged even this question. 
Um, I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, Elon Musk has his own brand and his own way of, of saying things. Um, but I have to say, you know, Tori Bruno answered, you know, pointed and perhaps not the most tactfully said comments with, with a lot of class. And if I had a rocket company, uh, Tori's the one I'd want to be tweeting for me. But, you know, as we just discussed a few minutes earlier, you know, Elon Musk has his own uh, conception of time and how that runs. And we see from, from other companies, we see reasonable and feasible timelines. And to be honest, I know it's great and exciting when, when Elon promises things that are going to happen next year and they take six years. But for me, I'd rather see something promised to me in a reasonable and feasible timeline. Um, I know that's maybe boring, but... Uh, I, I guess I'm a realist. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. We all know that Elon runs on what we call Elon time. So we never really know what that means, but we know that take all of his time to the grain of salt, usually add a little bit of time to it. But the one thing I can say about Elon time is that the time eventually hits. Even if it takes a while, he sticks to his word. Whatever he says, pretty much everything he has said that the company will do has happened up to this point. Now with Falcon Heavy finally lifting off. So before we go, I just had one final question for you guys to throw out here. So uh, Tom Cross, who writes for a website called Tesserati, uh, we were talking at the launch and he posted something on Instagram and he asked a question. He said, at what point in the launch did you know that Falcon Heavy was officially going to work? When the boosters returned. When the mission was over, I mean, it, it, it just basically said, gosh darn it, we're in a whole new world. We're all, you know, and uh, uh, in my, my estimation, that was it when this thing finally came back. But in a, if you're just talking about that day, um, is this going, going to work going forward? As Kat said before, I want to see the second and third and fourth launches before I make that estimation. So uh, you'll probably laugh at me, but as soon as he said he was going to put a Tesla as the payload, I knew it was going to launch. <laughs> because it's just something so ridiculous that, I don't know, it's kind of like I was watching not this most recent um, Alabama playing football for the national championship, but when they played Clemson, I, like, I went to bed when they were up and I texted to a friend. I was like, Ugh, don't worry, Clemson's going to win. It's the year for orange things. Uh, <laughs> it's just, I as soon as like it was confirmed it would be a Tesla payload, I was just like, oh, that rocket's going to go off. Mine was at Max-Q. So once it got to the point of, all right, because it went through the maximum dynamic pressure on the vehicle, if it can make it through that, even if the boosters didn't land, you know, the rest of it was on its way to complete its mission because that's a secondary objective technically is reusing the boosters. The primary objective is getting the payload, whatever it may be, in this case, into space. Um, once it got through Max-Q and it was through that point, I'm like, all right, I can breathe a little bit easier. I'm still on edge, again, till those boosters touch it down. But otherwise, you know, that's when I'm like, all right, we've got something here. SpaceX has something here. And like you mentioned, Gene, we are in a whole new era. Dropping the price down to he says about 150 million dollars per launch if not cheaper in the future and uh, i mean that's that's amazing i think at one point he was talking about getting it down to about 90 million dollars for a heavy vehicle launch talking out 
beyond low Earth orbit, geostationary, and he even mentioned interplanetary. So one thing that would be interesting to see, and and uh, we've talked about this on the show before. Sorry to sort of sideline you. Is I would like to know at what point does SpaceX become profitable? I think that's an important question too, because we we always talk in terms of how much the rocket costs, but it's kind of like Uber, right? Uber completely changed the market, but Uber is not a profitable company. From what I've heard, SpaceX is currently the only profitable company that Elon Musk has. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not, I mean, the thing is, is because they're privately held, we don't actually know all of this information. When is SpaceX profitable uh, in the way in which, you know, not just like breaking even, but when does this become profitable and also uh, replicable? When can other companies do something like this? Because that's the goal, right? We don't want to just have SpaceX doing anything, everything. We would like to have multiple SpaceXs and companies that are doing things like SpaceX. I, I, I can't argue with that. I, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to go ahead and uh, go through my head to try to find out when that was, because I know we, we did indeed talk about that, Sawyer. Um, I, I, I don't recall offhand, but that indeed is a good question. Um, I'd like to see more of these of these companies around. The problem is, though, I'm wondering what the market is, is going to look like, because right now the market seems to be going more toward the small sat and CubeSat area. And I don't know. I, th I think these, these little upstarts like... Um, like Rocket Lab, like Vector, they are going to go ahead and and really make a mark. And I know Hans Kroningsman was asked about about that same question: Does uh, SpaceX have a have a hankering to get into that market? And he said, probably not. We're not going to touch that because they did have that mark. You know, they were playing with in that sandbox for a little bit with Falcon One. And a lot of former SpaceXers came out of uh, that experience and started Vector. And uh, I believe some of them are, are working for Rocket Lab now. So, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to watch to see how the market fluctuates and how it responds. And I think we, we've kind of kicked this around, too, where we're not sure where Falcon Heavy fits in the, um, the commercial la launch market. I know it's got a it's got a point uh, for uh, for exploration for planetary payloads and so on, but is there a home for it in commercial payloads? I know there's a home for it in the military end of things, but is is commercial going to jump on this bandwagon to mitigate cost? I don't know. We'll see. Something certainly to keep an eye on. Uh, now, there's a lot of space news that happened, but obviously Falcon Heavy has been the big one. A lot of it breaking within the last few days. So I'm going to put these stories out to you guys now. We're going to give you a few weeks to send us your thoughts and comments on them, and then we're going to talk about it in the next episode, and we can use your comments on it. Uh, so first off, if you have any thoughts on Falcon Heavy, what we said about it, I know we've said some things that some might consider controversial. I know some of you may never listen to us again because of it, because you think we may be SpaceX, you know, haters on it, which, spoiler alert, <laughs> we're not. If you do, that's okay, I understand, but we still want to hear from you. Uh, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com is our email. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at TalkingSpace. We're also TalkingSpace on Facebook and on Google+. And in addition to that, you can always use the Contact Us page on our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com, or comment on this episode. So... 
first off, what did you think of Falcon Heavy? Our comments. That's the first thing we want to hear from you on. The two stories that we will be covering coming up involve uh, the president proposing the idea that the International Space Station, after the current lifespan runs out in 2024, might be handed over to commercial entities to continue operating the space station. And the third story is the 2019 proposed NASA budget has been released. We'll go over all the details of it and everything you need to know and why it may or may not pass coming up in the next episode but email us your thoughts that way we can use your comments as jumping off points in our next episode but in the meantime i'd like to thank everyone who joined us here for this falcon heavy special six years in the making thank you for joining us gene mcculka thanks sir this was a fun episode before i go i just want to give a shout out to to a nice fine young lady that uh, some of us here may actually know sarah mcnulty her mom is facing quite a quite a medical challenge right now and she's with her right now and i just wanted to go ahead and shout out sarah we're thinking about you hang in there and uh, all the best to you and your family exactly sarah's become a staple at the nasa press site working with them and we're all sending our thoughts out that way and thank you so much for joining us cat robinson always a pleasure to be here and uh since we mentioned doug on the show in case you listen doug congratulations your baby is so cute uh so um yeah, that's always fun. I like I like the pictures you and Jen post of little Amelia. So, oh, <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, we did lose Mark towards the end of the call there, which is why we stopped hearing his uh, comments. But a thank you as well, retroactively here to Mark Ratterman. And uh, again, a big thank you to SpaceX Public Affairs for helping to let us go down and cover that launch, despite some of the snags and snafus. Uh, they put on quite a show with their launch. Uh, and of course, thank you for joining us. And uh, until next time, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are, and go Falcon Heavy.